You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. This fall, we've been working through uh, a sermon series entitled The Beautiful Mess, and uh, we began part one of this series back in the spring where we worked through the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, and we've now come back around in the fall, and we, and we picked up where we left off uh, beginning in chapter seven, and we're kind of working our way through the rest of uh, this particular book of the Bible, and so uh, if you're just now coming along, um, you're, you're okay. Uh, we try to establish context as we go along so that um, y- you can engage the sequel, so to speak, without having seen the first movie. Um, but I would also direct you to the website to go and, and pick up uh, from the spring part one and listen to some of those sermons leading up to even where we are now. That's the beauty of technology is that you can, you can do that and, and engage in things that you missed prior. And so I uh, would direct you uh, to do that uh, if, if that applies to you. For the last couple weeks, we've been uh, looking at Paul's emphasis and address on uh, what it means to be a missional Christian, uh, what it means to be a Christian that lives in community, that cares about the, the brotherhood slash sisterhood, this family of God, and, and what does it look like to live the Christian life in light of community and, and mission as values. And so a couple weeks ago, we, we began this mini-series of sorts, this three-week run at this idea of how do we do this? What does it look like for us culturally? And Paul a couple weeks ago, gave us this example of food offered to idols, and that's something that we all struggle with, right? We all are inclined to go to the temple week in and week out and eat meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods, right? We, we all battle with that, um, but, but there is some connecting of the dots for us. We, we are able to cross the bridge into our particular context, and we've seen that the last couple weeks, and we'll see that once again as we kind of wrap up this particular uh, issue that Paul's addressing, and then we'll dive into uh, some really interesting things. Things like uh, women wearing head coverings in the church service, and what do you do with that? And uh, spiritual gifts, and so it's going to get highly controversial for the next few weeks. And so, uh, if you like controversy, you should be licking your chops and be excited to come in for the next few weeks as we kind of move toward the holiday season. Uh, but for this morning, let, let's open up our Bibles to First Corinthians chapter ten. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you nearby. Uh, you can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that with you. That's the church's gift to you for free. We want everyone to be the owner of a Bible, so, so please take that uh, as our gift to you. Uh, I'm not going to read the entirety of the passage uh, for the sake of time this morning, so let me just pray and we'll jump in and we'll get right to work. God, thank you for breathing out these words uh, that make out this letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, It's for our benefit, as we will see clearly this morning. Uh, God, you're kind to us. You have uh, specifically revealed yourself in unique ways through the scriptures, uh, ways that we couldn't possibly uh, glean if we were to just simply look out upon creation itself, though we can learn much about you from creation. So we do thank you for your word I pray uh, this morning that you would uh, help to uh, reveal things in our lives that we are holding onto with white-knuckled fists that are actually getting in the way of our own joy. 
Um, I pray that we would see those things that we're asking you, Jesus, to write the check for because we love them more than, than you, if we're honest. Um, I pray that ultimately that whatever it is that is sitting on the throne of our hearts, that that, that would be replaced with you, Christ. And uh, we know that in order for that to happen, a death must take place at a heart level. So um, I pray that you would do the hard work of, of helping us to die in, in ways that will actually bring about a resurrection uh, for our greater joy on the other side of that heart level uh, death uh, from those things that we grab hold to and cling to so tightly. Uh, would you do that, Holy Spirit? Uh, you're the only one who can do that during this time. And would you do that in my own heart as well? Pray that this sermon would be uh, for me just as much as anyone else. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. George uh, Santiana, Harvard philosophy professor, once said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing that's unique uh, that we experience, that someone in another culture uh, prior to us has not experienced somewhere along the way, that uh, it, it may manifest itself in a, in a new way culturally, but uh, typically we're dealing with things that people who have gone before us have already dealt with in some way, shape, or fashion. Ecclesiastes 1.9 puts it this way, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. And so uh, Paul is taking this approach in chapter 10 as he begins this chapter of the Bible by saying, hey, we need to look back at the past. We need to look at the people of God who have come before you, saints in Corinth, because there's much that we can learn. They stepped on some landmines that it'd be really nice for you to not have to step on. And in order to know what those are, we need to look back at, at what their lives look like and at what they engaged and where they fell on their faces. And so for the first 13 verses of this morning, Paul's laying out a history lesson for the sake of present tense wisdom for God's people, and, and that's for us, uh, even up to present day. And so Israel is presented as a bad example of, of something that we can learn from as it pertains to fleeing from idolatry, which is going to be the main thrust of this morning's text. Uh, if you look at verse 1, just jumping in, Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and, and in the sea. Uh, he's not talking about the eye cloud there. He's talking about a literal cloud uh, that, uh, that was over the Israelites as they left Egypt, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night would, would lead the Israelites to where God was taking them. I've said this before, how sweet would it be if God just directed uh, every step of our way with a pillar of cloud during the daylight hours and a pillar of fire uh, by night. Everyone would wanna be a part of this church uh, because decision making would be super easy. Where do I go for lunch after the service, God? Oh, let me just follow the pillar of cloud, and, and I'll go right where you want me to go, and it'll be amazing, and we all would love if the will of God worked that way for us present day. Uh, God did lead his people in this way in the Old Testament um, so that they were led by a pillar of cloud by day, and that's what Paul's driving at. Um, the sea he's referring to, I think it's fairly obvious, the Red Sea that was parted um, by, by God via Moses as his instrument uh, of, of power and sovereignty as the Israelites passed through the waters from certain death uh, at the hands of Pharaoh and his army to life. 
And so what Paul's saying is um, the Israelites moved from slavery to freedom by way of this cloud and by way of this particular sea. Um, This was their baptism, so to speak, as they passed through from death to life through the waters of the Red Sea as it it was parted for them. And what Paul's saying is you, Church of Corinth, you can relate to that. Um, You've all experienced the sacrament of baptism. You're a part of the visible church. And then he goes on and he continues to use this sacramental language in verses three and four. He shifts from baptism to communion. Look at verse three. He says, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. You see that sacramental language that Paul's using there? That the spirit provided manna in the wilderness for the Israelites for 40 years. Um, And the spirit provided water on a couple of occasions through the striking of, of a rock. According to John's gospel, if you fast forward to the New Testament, we know that uh, Jesus is the true bread of life come down from heaven. That's how John describes Jesus. And here Paul describes Jesus as the thirst quenching rock. Um, In other words, Jesus is the bread of life and he's the living water. And so you have the connecting of the dots from Old to New Testament here. What Paul's saying is the Israelites received their Lord's Supper in the wilderness, you might say. And then you, church in Corinth, you can relate to that as well. You participate in the Lord's Supper. The the church in Corinth was much like our church. She would gather and people would be baptized from time to time and they would receive communion together. And Paul's saying you can relate to that. You can relate to the people of Israel, right? And you can just see the, the, the Corinthian saints going, yeah, yeah, we are like the Israelites. We are the people of God. And they'd been beating their chest for several chapters up to this point in in arrogance, And so we we see a little bit of a twist in verse five. Paul says, yes, that's true. Um, There is a visible manifestation of the church here in Corinth. Nevertheless, verse five, with most of the people of Israel, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That uh, most of the first generation of Israelites died in the desert. They never saw the promised land, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Those were the only two exceptions. Even Moses, the fearless leader, never got to enter the promised land. That it's possible to profess faith in Christ, to be publicly baptized before the church, and to come take communion week in and week out, rhythmically and regularly, and not have true faith in Jesus. That it's possible to go through the motions and not really be a Christian. And we talk about this all the time here in the Bible Belt, right? That's a real issue for us. We live in the land of cultural Christianity. It's weird not to be a part of a local church. If you have no affiliation, that's strange to vocalize. There are benefits to being a part of the local church. There are certain private schools that you can only get into if, if uh, one of the parents is a professing Christian. It, it betters your business if you have an affiliation to a local church as, a, as opposed to just being a complete irreligious pagan in this uh, hyper-Christian uh, cultural society. You can go through all the motions and not have true saving faith. And so Paul says in verse six, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as, as the Israelites did. Paul's saying, don't, don't make those same mistakes. There's nothing new under the sun. Guys, learn from those who have gone before you. And he begins to give some very tangible examples of what this looks like. And look at how crazy this is. As you look at um, verses seven through 10, notice some of the uh, striking similarities between what the Israelites struggled with and what we struggle with at a heart level. Example number one, verse seven. Paul says, 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul's quoting Exodus 32 here, the episode with the golden calf, right? Moses had gone up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites thought it would be a good idea to melt all their jewelry and fashion an idol to bend their knee to in worship. It was a really boneheaded moment for the Israelites. And it included the participating in pagan cultic meals, which is very similar to what those in Corinth are dealing with at this time, with the pagan temples and the sacrificing of meat to idols. This particular episode in Exodus 32 led to the death of 3,000 Israelites and nearly destroyed the people of God. Paul says, learn from that. Example number two, verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Here Paul's referring to the, the idolatrous episode at Baal Peor, where Israelites engaged in pagan fertility rituals. It was believed that um, by the pagans that participation in prostitution and orgies would lead to health and wealth and fertility. It's a weird twist on the prosperity gospel. Um, this is not very different from the sexual immorality taking place in the temples in Corinth after that meat was offered to idols. And, and we're told by Paul that this led to the death of roughly 23,000 Israelites. If you go to the book of Acts, we get really caught up in the fact that 5,000 were added to their number that day in those moments where the church just explodes and all of a sudden it's a mega church overnight. We're told in a blink that the church was reduced by 23,000 because they were turning to, to uh, worship other gods. They were giving their hearts to other lovers, you might say. Paul says, learn from this. Verse nine, example three, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Here Paul's referring to Numbers chapter 21 where the Israelites blasphemed God by rejecting the manna that he had provided. They viewed the manna as spam. They wanted steak. They wanted to go back to, to Egypt and get the real deal. Same thing that's happening in Corinth. People are wanting to turn back to their pagan practices even after conversion. There's this connecting of the dots and we're told that God sent serpents among the people that bit and killed many of the Israelites. Really crazy story. You should go read that one if you've never read that story. It's insane, especially if you're scared of snakes. Um, and then example number four, verse 10. He, said, uh, he says, don't grumble as some of the Israelites did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That uh, They grumbled often in the wilderness. We wish we were back in Egypt. Oh, that we could be back in the land of slavery under Pharaoh and his regime. That would be so much better than being here in the wilderness where we don't know if you're going to provide, God. And some said this to their own destruction. In Corinth, many were looking back longingly at the paganism that they had left, thinking maybe that's better. I mean, maybe in the midst of the persecution, in the, in the midst of the struggles of denying self and taking up one's cross that many in the city of Corinth were going, maybe I should just go back to that. Maybe that would be better. And Paul says in verse 11, these things happened as an example. They were written for our instruction. He says, on whom the end of the ages has come, that that's between Jesus' first and second coming. We're a part of that along with Corinth. And he says, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. That no one's beyond temptation. That if you go back to those examples, no one is beyond playing with the idols of our day like Israel 
with the golden calf episode. No one is beyond sexual immorality. We live in the land of the sexual revolution right now. No one is beyond questioning God's goodness, putting him to the test like the Israelites did in the wilderness. No one is beyond grumbling to God as they look at their stories and look back on their past and where they've come from and where they are now and begin to assess whether God got it right as he uh, put the pen to paper and authoring our stories, that none of us are beyond that. And if we think we've arrived, we need to get ready for the fallout. You've heard that famous phrase, pride comes before the fall. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this passage says this, as the old age and the new grind against one another like two tectonic plates, those who think they are standing firm one minute may find a moral earthquake happening all around them. And if they're not careful, they'll end up flat on their faces. Now, that's important for us to take note of in our subculture because um, oftentimes we get a little high on the horse when we read our Bible X number of days in a row or, uh, you know, we uh, pray X number of minutes a day or we stay away from these things that you're supposed to put a big X over or we do the things you're supposed to put a big, big check by. And we do those long enough and we get caught up uh, in ourselves a little bit. We, we become very proud. We become uh, full of ourselves oftentimes in a way that becomes very dangerous because then we can't see uh, the very landmines that we're in danger of stepping on over the, the, the size of our noses as we look down them at, at everyone around us. Paul's saying that the person on their knees this week can easily, uh, in prayer, can easily become the person uh, who succumbs to temptation next week. That the person who reads their Bible faithfully this week can easily become the person vulnerable to sin next week. The person who shares the gospel faithfully this week and sees someone converted can easily be the one to fall into temptation and uh, vulnerability to sin next week. Paul says in verse 13, no temptation has overcome you. And here's the good news. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That there are a couple pieces of good news here. One, God is faithful. That God doesn't uh, command that which he uh, will not enable. That makes sense? God's not gonna call you to something that he's not going to enable by the power of his Holy Spirit in your life as it pertains to temptation and sin, that you're not alone, that, that God is with you, he's for you. God actually has a plan to see you grow in sanctification and Christian growth, and he's gonna see that plan to its end. And what that means is he cares deeply in those moments of sin and temptation to engage that with you. He's for you. What does that look like? Um, if, if someone were to ask you the question, uh, what would a time look like in your life when you can celebrate the faithfulness of God in a season of temptation for you? How might you answer that? How might you make much of God for his faithfulness as you uh, engage things uh, in your life and in the culture that brings about temptation and struggle for you? God is faithful, number one, but secondly, uh, you're not alone. That, that the temptations that you battle uh, in the Christian life are common to man, Paul says. You're not the first one on planet Earth to have uh, wrestled with these particular issues. We buy into this crazy lie that I think Satan loves that we buy into, which is the lie that I'm the only one. And so I can't possibly tell anyone else in the church about this struggle because I'm the first one in human history over the course of thousands of years of the existence of human beings that has struggled with this. And if I were to actually vocalize this, I might be the one to get thrown under the bus. Now, might that happen? 
It's possible. The church is filled with just enough dangerous people who will take what you say and run with it in, in a, an unhealthy way. Uh, but I don't think that discredits uh, us and our vulnerability and our willingness to share because it's in that that the church comes alongside of us and is able to walk with us um, in our seasons of temptation and struggle with sin. We're going to talk about this in community groups this week, and this is another good reason why it's helpful to engage in community groups. Um, the reality here that, uh, that gets to the crux of what Paul's driving at has to do with the promises of God. That um, when you fall into temptation, what happens is a false promise presents itself. This particular thing or this particular person can give me ultimate happiness, can save me from great despair, can provide hope for me in the midst of where I am in life right now. There's a false promise, and the way to combat false promises is with the true promises of God and who he is and what he uh, he offers us in himself. And, and so uh, we want to talk about that this week in community groups. What, what false promises are, are we believing? And what is the true and better promise that we can hold before ourselves uh, so that we might uh, find that path of escape through the community of God with a faithful God who is before us, who cares deeply uh, that, we, uh, that we grow as Christians and experience more of his joy in our lives. We've got to get past that lie, though, that we're the only one. It's just not true. We all struggle with um, the things that Israel struggled with. Um, these struggles are real, and they're not struggles that we battle in isolation. We've got to, to get past that lie of Satan. If you move into verse 14, here's the crux of this entire chapter, and I would argue the crux of the entire fall. And so let me put it this way. Um, Paul's about to, to make a statement uh, about idolatry in verse 14, and I would, I would say it this strongly. I would say, if we walk away from the fall, we get to the end of this book of the Bible, and we feel more confident in our understanding of the spiritual gifts, which is what we're gonna get into soon, uh, but we're still clinging with white-knuckled fists to our idols, that's an epic fail. If we grow in our understanding of marriage and singleness, going back to chapter seven from a few weeks ago, but we're still clinging to these things that we believe can ultimately give us hope and meaning and identity with white-knuckled fists, then that's an epic fail. But rather, if we flip that script and we still have questions at the end of the fall about spiritual gifts and about marriage and singleness and we're still wrestling with those things, but we've begun to release our grip on these things that we think can offer us hope and identity apart from Christ, that's a massive win for this church and this community. And so I think what Paul says in verse 14 is crucial. I think everything hinges on this verse. He says this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned I was at a, a church planters conference slash retreat. Uh, Peter Crave, who's the uh, professor of philosophy at Boston College, uh, was the, the keynote speaker at this conference. And at one point, he made this statement. He was talking about culture wars and the battle that we're in um, in our American context. And he said this very strong statement. He said, America is the most polytheistic culture in all of human history. America is a land filled with 360 million gods because each of us lives as though we are a god. That 
We, we live in such a way that the goal is to build up our kingdom and make a name for ourselves. And so we must acquire things and people who uh, help us to accomplish that goal of making uh, our name great. And so when Paul drives at this issue of idolatry, he, he's getting very personal. He's not just talking about um, jewelry that's been melted down and fashioned into things that we now worship. He's not just talking about blocks of wood anymore. He's getting at a heart level issue. Um, it's a worship issue. And, and we're not simply talking about the narrow sense of that word uh, when the church gathers and sings and takes communion um, and tithes and all those things that we do that we call a worship service, not just in that narrow sense of the word, that's part of it, but, but he's also talking about the broad sense of the word, uh, which would be this, worship is all of life lived in allegiance to someone or something. would be one way we could say it. If you go to Romans chapter 12, uh, verse one, Paul actually defines worship. Many of you know this verse. He says this, it's up on the screen. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship That your spiritual worship, Paul says, is more than attending a church service and singing and taking communion, although that's part of it. Your spiritual worship is presenting your body as a living sacrifice, sacrificing your body uh, on the altar for the sake of God. It's giving yourself to someone or something. And what that means is that we're, we're all worshipers. Going back to a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this reality that we're all theologians because we all have thoughts about God. Um, even atheists who believe that God doesn't exist, that's a thought about God. And so we're all theologians, and in the same way, we're all worshipers. Um, we all entrust our hearts to people and things. It's not that some worship and some don't. Um, the, the key text in the Bible for this argument that we're all worshipers is found in Romans 1, beginning in verse 22. Let me put this up on the screen for us. Paul says this, Claiming to be wise, they, human beings, became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. There's a trade that happens. If you're not gonna worship the creator, you're going to worship created things because we can't help but worship. We were designed, we were created to be worshipers. He goes on to say it this way, moving forward in Romans 1. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, see the trade again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That, that Paul's saying we all worship someone or something. It's not that some of us worship and others of us are just disinterested in everything, apathetic toward all things in the world. Um, for some of us, it's God. And for others of us, it's things that God has made, including image bearers of God, other people. And, and Oftentimes, even as Christians, we, we find ourselves functioning like a pinball in a pinball machine, right? We just kind of, we bounce back and forth. I love you, God. I love the things that you made. I love you, God. I love the things that you made. And we just kind of, we, we, we bounce around and, and we find ourselves uh, moving and ebbing and flowing. Um, our hearts, uh, they are prone to wander. And so there are seasons where we deeply love God and then we, we find ourselves off track worshiping other things. But worship never stops. Worship never ceases in the midst of all of that. There's a constant flowing of worship from our hearts. The question is simply, who or what are we worshiping at any given moment in time? Who are those people or what are those things that compete with God for your affections? 
Philip Ryken, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, the very first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And in light of that commandment, Philip Ryken says this. He says, the world is full of God substitutes and God additives, things that take the place of God in daily life. The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have any false gods anymore, but because we have so many. That we look at Israel and we go, the shaping of jewelry into Idols that were worshiped. We don't do that. That's weird, right? Uh, blocks of wood being carved out into images that are worshiped. We don't do that. That would be weird. Um, but the argument is actually we've, we managed to expand idolatry out even more over the course of human history. Going back to Calvin's quote from a couple of weeks ago, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, just cranking one out after another, after another, after another. And so let me do this. Let me throw out some diagnostic questions this morning that I think help to um, excavate what's under the surface of our hearts to, to help us to see the idol for what it is so that we can then turn, flee from it, as Paul says, and experience greater joy. So that's actually what's at stake here is, is your joy and, and my joy. Um, and the question is, will we release our white-knuckled grip on whatever the diagnosis uh, says for our hearts in order to uh, grow and experience more joy in Christ? So here are some diagnostic questions. What are those things that keep you up at night? What are those things that keep you from being able to sleep because you just can't turn your brain off that might point toward a potential idol? What do you often daydream about when you have free moments throughout the day and your mind wanders? Where, where does it go? What do you get excited about? What is it that just uh, creates adrenaline in your body when you think about, when you engage? How do you spend your time and your money? Um, I think a great diagnostic that's very practical would be for us to just simply go back to the last six months and look at our calendars and our checkbooks and just see what we're engaging a lot of our time in and what we're giving a lot of our money to. Um, that likely will help to assess uh, what potential idols of our hearts are. What is it that if you could have it would make your life complete? What is it that right now you go, it, it, there, there's just, I'm not there yet. I'm almost to fulfillment, but I'm missing one thing. What, what is that one thing, that one piece of the pie that's missing that if you could have it would make you feel more complete? What is it that if you couldn't have it would devastate you? And then lastly, where do you turn in times of trouble? What do you go to for comfort, for hope, for meaning in those moments when life gets really hard? Here's some possible answers to those types of questions. Perhaps it's a significant other, um, married or not. Perhaps it's your kids if you're a parent, maybe your family at large. Uh, it could be work, a career. It could be the pursuit of a perfect home. Welcome to Peachtree City. It could be sex. It could be food and drink. It could be technology, the next new gadget, gotta have it. it could be sports. Could be health slash fitness. Could be money and or possessions. Could be a hobby that, that hasn't made the, the cut in terms of the list I put together thus far. And notice this, in all those things that I just threw out, none of those things on the list in and of themselves are bad things. That's not typically how idolatry works. In fact, an idol is usually a good thing that we elevate to a God thing, a place of supremacy, which makes it a bad thing at a heart level for us in some way. So where, where's your heart these days? As you look at those types of diagnostic questions, 
Martin Luther put it this way as he defined idolatry. He says this, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. All right, that's the old Lutheran way of saying it. If we fast forward 500 years in human history, this is the way Tim Keller would put it for us uh, in layman's terms. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. And, and notice what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, examine your idol, pull out, a, pull out a microscope and see if it's really that bad, like get really close to it and check it out and, and spend a time in scientific observation to see what's going on there. He doesn't say tiptoe the line when it comes to, to flirting with these things. So Paul's never asking the question, how close to the line can I get without crossing it? That's not in Paul's theology at all. In fact, he says, there's no such thing as casual worship. You're giving your heart to something when you worship. And so treat your idols like a deadly cancerous disease that's after your heart. Run, Paul says. And notice the language that he uses to try to make this point that the heart engages and it can't help but to engage. As you look at verse 15 in the next few verses, he says this. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? In other words, he's using Lord's Supper language here again, sacramental language. Participating in the Lord's Supper is an act of communion with God and his people. We know this. When we take communion, and we'll do it in just a few minutes, we're knitting our hearts once again to the true God and to his people as we come as a family to participate. Paul says in verse 19, what then, uh, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, verse 20, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Going back to chapter eight, he's saying in some sense, yes, just a block of wood. There's nothing godlike about these things that we worship in their essence. But though an idol is nothing, when you make something other than God the object of your affection, Paul says, something intimate takes place between you and that thing, like the knitting of our hearts to God in communion. That there's something that takes place that draws our heart away, which is why Paul says in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he. Why would Paul use the word jealousy if idolatry in some sense is not adultery? If it's not a taking of our heart away from God and fixing it on, on other things, if it's not us giving our hearts to other lovers. Paul's saying you can't make someone or something other than God the object of affection without giving some sense of your heart away. And so he wants to fight for the human heart. That's what Paul's after. He's fighting for your heart. He's fighting for my heart so that we would no longer be enemies of our own joy, but would release our grip from those things so that we might experience more of Jesus. And so he says in verse 23, as he wraps things up and comes back around to where he started back in chapter eight, he says, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, guys. All things are lawful, but not all things build up 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, it's not just my heart that's at stake. It's, it's your hearts as well. And the way that I engage this thing called life matters deeply in terms of your heart, not just mine. And so we have to be uh, concerned about our own hearts in this fight against idolatry. But, but there's also a piece where we, we so deeply love the hearts of God's people uh, beyond our own that we're willing to do whatever we have to to fight for their heart's allegiance to Christ as well. You see that? You see what Paul's doing there? Going back to last week, he says, I have rights, I have freedoms, but it doesn't mean that it's also uh, always helpful or edifying to the church. And so I'm gonna uh, use wisdom and discretion in how I engage all things. But going back to chapter eight, he, knowledge without love is like a brick house without mortar. It's worthless, Paul says. And so as he wraps up, he goes back to this case study and he says in verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth and the Lord and it's, uh, is the Lord's and, and the fullness thereof. Um, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And so um, if there's no talk of, of other lovers in the conversation that's happening, happening with you in the body, then exercise your rights. Like you're within your rights to, to, uh, to go as the Lord leads you. And he even gets missional. Right? He, he says, uh, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, he says, if a pagan invites you to dinner, don't shun his or her hospitality by making what's kosher, the big E on the eye chart, going back to last week. Be a good, sensitive missionary so that you might win some, uh, as Paul declared in, ver in chapter nine. Verse 28, he says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? In other words, if my, if my choices are gonna inflict a blow on someone else's conscience, on someone else's heart that's being pulled away from Christ to other things, it's not worth it. It has nothing to do with my own conscience, Paul says, but I care about others so much I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see their allegiance uh, directed toward Christ and my own as well. And so he, he ends this chapter with this famous verse that many of us know. He says this, so, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That, that Paul says, when it comes to decisions, you could sum up, really, um, we, we could have just taken the last three weeks off and gone like wakeboarding or something, and I could have just given you the next 30 seconds of what I'm gonna say, because this sums the whole thing up. When, when you're facing decisions in the Christian life, down to the most simplistic daily choices that, that you have to make at an, at an ethical level, uh, really two questions uh, should come to bear in that decision-making. Number one, based on verses 31 through uh, 33, will it glorify God? Will it bring glory to the one who made me? Will it uh, champion my life as one that, that puts Christ on the throne rather than seeks to dethrone him? And then two, will it prevent the advancement of the gospel? And Paul is, is brilliant here. He says, I don't wanna give it an offense to the Jews, so the religious moralistic types who are lost. I don't wanna give an offense to the Greeks, 
the irreligious pagan types who are lost. And I don't even want to give an offense to the church of God, those who have been saved but have a propensity to wander and have their hearts gripped by other lovers. Will it glorify God and will it prevent the advancement of the gospel? Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 11 as he closes out, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The, the whole reason Paul can say what he says in chapters 8 through 10 is because Jesus has set the stage for all of it. That, that the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus gave up his rights, his freedom, humbling himself to the point of death for our sake. If you, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 as we close this morning, uh, this is just gospel saturation at its best. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Paul says, I can lay down my liberties for the glory of God and the salvation of many because that's exactly what Jesus did. That, that Jesus had a crown and a throne and a scepter and he set it all aside to, aside to enter the slums of human history, to be born amongst barnyard animals, to have to be taught how to spell the very things that he created when the foundations of the earth were laid out. That's great humility. Jesus didn't have to do that, but Jesus laid aside his authority, his uh his supremacy on the throne, so to speak, and added to his deity humanity so that we might be saved. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died our death. He rose and conquered death. Uh, the Holy Spirit is within us. Uh, resurrection power is within us as we battle idolatry. We need to understand that Jesus died for every past, present, and future tense idol that we're going to attempt to cling to. All right, that, that's crucial that we, we get that, that the goal is not to come out of this chapter and to attempt to uh, relinquish our grip on the things that capture our hearts other than Christ so that God will love us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God loves you deeply and he knows what you're gonna grasp at next week and he still loves you unconditionally because of who Christ is. But that beauty of Christ is meant to compel us to release our grip on things so that we can enjoy Christ more to experience a greater joy than we're experiencing um, as we hold on to those things with white-knuckled grips. As we take communion uh, this morning, we'll take the bread and we'll dip it in, in the cup, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And, and as you do that this morning, think about the symbolism in this chapter as Paul uses this sacramental language that when you take the bread and dip it in the cup, just look around at what's happening as you do that. That there's a, a unifying, a knitting of our hearts to God in that moment as a means of grace. And, and, and there's a participation as a body. We're knitting ourselves together as we come collectively to take the bread and dip it in the cup. As you prepare to do that, ask God to reveal to you uh, what those things are that are competing uh, for your affections with Christ. What, what are those things that your heart is being knit to that there just needs to be a, a release in order to experience more of God's joy found in Christ himself. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com.
There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.